0: So, uh, most of you will have picked up by now, but I guess if this is your first time with us, or first time for a long time, you might not have picked up with us, uh, that I have suddenly been plunged um, in the last couple of weeks into a new world, um, as I prepare for a new job and prepare to leave um, all souls. And um, the the sort of timeline is something like, uh, my final Sunday here will be Mothering Sunday, uh, March the 22nd, and I have about four weeks gap. And then on April the 20th, I will be licensed as uh, the Archdeacon Middlesex. Now, apart from the ongoing teasing of my children about the fact that at that point, bizarrely, in Church of England speak, I won't anymore be the Reverend Richard Frank. I will be, wait for it, the Venerable Richard Frank. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm getting it out there early so that when you all discover it, I'm just. You know, let's just get it all over with. My my kids. Actually, everybody I've met just thinks that is properly hysterical, and let's face it, it is. Um, <clears throat> but alongside all of the, the, the silliness of that and the fact that at some point I'm going to be wearing some seriously blingy robes in St. Paul's Cathedral, um, which again, you can all have a good laugh at, um, is this sort of gradually dawning realisation, I suspect happens at every point in life where something new is happening, whether uh, uh, you have your first child or you go into a brand new job or you move house to a new area, that sense of, I thought I had a sort of idea what this looked like, but now it's beginning to unfold. So on Thursday afternoon, I spent some time with the uh, sadly also retiring uh, um, PA to the previous uh, um, archdeacon, and I sat in his old office, and together we went through the diary for the next six months, um, once I start. Um, And it was okay. I mean, she's been very good and kept stuff out of the diary. but there were a lot of TLAs, as my brother would put it, lots of three-letter abbreviations. Um, and I'm going, so what's that? Oh, yes, you're on that committee. What's that? Oh, yes, you're on that group. What's that? Yeah, you chair that one. What's that? And, and on. And on. And That's fine. I sort of knew that was coming. But there is that sense of, oh, so you want me to do, to do that? And oh, right, that's my responsibility now. And OK, yes, I'll do that. And you want me to make a decision on that, but I haven't started yet. OK, we'll do that. that that's sort of how it goes. The interesting thing is that we apply that experience of ought and have to and job description not just to the jobs that we do in life, the roles and responsibilities that we do in life, but we also apply that language to our faith. We have a really deep gut level response to reading a passage of scripture like this that basically says subconsciously, sort of unconsciously, tell me what I need to do. That somehow, faith, religion, is fundamentally about being given a list of tasks. Committees to sit on, equivalent thereof. Things that we have to tick off. That somehow, primarily, what we're looking for in Scripture is a list. A job description, a role description, a task. So when you hear a, a, a passage like this, a passage from the letter to the Hebrews, written by an unnamed writer to a group of Uh, uh, Jewish converts uh, in the fairly early church. And uh, we hear things uh, like, um, let us draw near to God, verse 22. Verse 23, let us hold unswaveringly to the hope uh, we profess. Verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another uh, on to good deeds. All we're hearing is a list. And the real problem with these lists in religious terms is none of us, are up to the task. I mean, I, I might be feeling my knees slightly buckling as I begin to look at what I've taken on in April. But it'll be all right, I'll learn the job, we'll get there, and, you know, at, I, you know I'm not operate, not doing heart, open heart surgery, I'm not going to kill anybody, I, I, it'll be okay, I'll make some mistakes and we'll get there. But when it comes to faith, when somebody says to us, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, if you and I look at, look at ourselves in the mirror, we're going to go... Actually, my heart is occasionally sincere. It's also pretty often hypocritical or bitter or unforgiving. Unswerving faith. I'm not sure my faith is always unswerving. It seems to be doing quite a lot of chicanery at times. It's quite a lot of times it certainly doesn't feel fully assured. So how am I to deal with this? And so I just simply feel failures. And actually almost worse than that, On a Sunday, we can sort of take a deep breath and depending on how you worship, either sort of close our eyes or put our arms up or sing loudly or read the scriptures or pray. And then we hit Monday morning, and the only way of dealing with the fact that we feel pretty rotten about religion is to just not do religion. And so we live our Monday through Saturday lives in a sort of effective atheism as if, well, I can't achieve everything God needs me to do. I'm just gonna get through life. It's hard enough anyway, isn't it? You You know, parenting is hard enough work is hard enough, Um, uh, friendships are hard enough, being a good neighbour is hard enough, without having to add into it all the demands of being a good prayer, reading my Bible every day. Yeah? The whole point of Scripture is that that's completely wrong. That that's not what the Christian faith is about. That unique amongst all religions and worldviews, the Christian faith does not start with a list of things that you and I have to achieve, a job description, a task list, a role description, if you like. It begins instead with what God has already done. And then says, given what he's already done, then how might you respond? Given what God's already done, how might you respond? And the beautiful thing about this little passage is that what the writer of the Hebrews does is he looks back at what God has already done in Jesus, he looks forward at what God will do in Jesus, and he sets our lives in the middle. And he says, live out of a response to what God has already done in Jesus, what God will do in Jesus, and respond to that. He doesn't say, depending on how you live your life, God will respond. And it it doesn't seem to matter how many times we remind one another of that, we still get it wrong. We still think it's about what we've done. Listen to what he says. He said, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Since, therefore, what God has done. Now, it's a pretty rich little few verses. And if you're not sort of familiar with Old Testament patterns of sacrifice and the, the layout of the temple, you're probably sitting there thinking, that's very strange language. What is this most holy place? Why would Jesus' blood get you in there? How does his body become the curtain? What is a great high priest? Well, to get your head fully around that, you need to read the first cha- nine chapters of Hebrews, because really this bit is a sort of summary of everything that's come before. But in essence, the picture language of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, was of a great temple which was itself picture language for our distance from God. And by distance, the Bible doesn't mean physical, geographical or even time distance. It means the distance of hearts. And you know how that works. You can be sitting in the same room as somebody, but if it's either a complete stranger, you know, on the tube train, or if it's somebody you have massively fallen out with, the distance between your hearts feels unbridgeable or you could be on opposite sides of the world to somebody but you just know that you're thinking of one another and you feel as close as anything that's the sort of distance that the writer of Hebrews is talking about he's not talking about that God is somehow a long way up there and we're here, God is here the question is where are our hearts and the problem that the Bible puts to us again and again and again is how are we to bridge that distance of our hearts that I basically make my life all about me not about him All about me, not about others. I always use that phrase about sin as a little word with I right in the centre of it. I put I, me, at the centre of things. And that makes my heart distant from God. Religion says, right, bridge the distance by being better, by being good, try harder, pray more, meditate more, go to church more, give money to the poor. And the Bible says, well, yeah, good luck with that. But you know your heart is still going to be selfish. Your heart is still going to be your heart. Instead, says the Bible, The great high priest, the one who comes from God to us and then takes us to God, bridges that gap for you. The temple used to have a holy of holies, a room that only one person once a year could enter the great high priest. And that holy of holies had a curtain. And you could only enter that curtain once you'd made a sacrifice of blood. And that sacrifice of blood was from a a lamb or a kid that was sacrificed. This is three and a half thousand years ago. And that blood, which represented life rather than death, was just to show that our sin costs, that there's a cost to bridging the gap. And that great high priest would go, taking the blood through the curtain into the Holy of Holies, and they were so terrified of that man walking in there, they would tie a rope around his ankles so that if God struck him down, they could pull him out. There was that sense of awe, of respect, of terror, actually, of walking in. You know, just walk in and say, Hi, God you walk in in fear and trembling. That's the picture language of it. So there's a curtain that cuts you off. There's blood that has to be spilt. But all of that was simply picture language. It was picture language to remind us that it doesn't matter how many times you make those sacrifices. It doesn't matter how hard you try and live a good life. It doesn't matter how much you pray or give money to the poor. In the end, you're only as good as the next 10 minutes that you and I mess up all the time, that we're selfish, we're self-centered. We lie, we cheat. We're unfaithful. We break stuff. We break relationships. But God doesn't break anything. God never breaks his promises. God steps towards us in Jesus. And therefore the picture language is that as Jesus dies on the cross, his blood is the perfect sacrifice. His life for our life. Here's the one who never sinned. Here's the one who always had God as Heavenly Father at the center of his life. So when his blood is spilt, his life is enough for your life. His death replaces your death. His body becomes that temple which is torn in two. And he scoops me up. He scoops you up. And he carries you into that Holy of Holies. This is what God has done. And he did it long before you were alive. He did it long before you could even say the word God. He did it long before you chose to follow him. He gets in first, he makes the first move. All that we do is response. And then, says the writer to the Hebrews, even as we look back to what Jesus has done, we then look ahead. Right at the end of verse 25, he talks about, as you see the day, in English, capital D, it doesn't quite work like that in Greek. But anyway, it, the day approaching. And actually what you find from chapter 9 is that he's been talking about that day when Jesus will return. It's not simply that Jesus does something in the past that says, right, have a good life. You're on your own now. But there will come a day when Jesus returns. And actually the language there also goes back back to the temple. See, once the great high priest had gone into the Holy of Holies and taken the blood of sacrifice, they would wait. And then he would return and come out and he would lay his hand on a goat and not kill it, but set it free. Take it out into the wilderness. The scapegoat, the one who would carry their sins far away. It was all beautiful picture language. That sense of celebrating what God has done. And there will come a day there will come a day when Jesus will return, when he will draw a line under history, when there will be, according, uh, the, using the language of Revelation, the, well, there will be a day when there is no more death, no more dying, no more separateness or loneliness, no more sickness, no more despair, and will put all things right because he's the one who's given his life for our life, who's died death in our place, who's bought for us a life that takes us through even death, to the life of the world to come. So all that we do is to live out of response to that. Here is this astonishing gift that God gives us in Jesus. The gift of forgiveness. The gift of access to God. The gift of friendship. Heart to heart. The question then is, so then, how should we live? And here's the beauty of this. That when you look at scripture, you find that the words of the Bible are beautifully and bluntly realistic about how incredibly hard it is to live, even in the light of that wonderful gift. Because let's face it, Monday morning is tough. Whatever your Monday morning is. Actually, for me, it's Sunday morning is tough. Sunday morning, about six o'clock, is the, mor- is the day, I've said this before, is, is the day of the week that I wake up with my heart in my boots. Not because I don't want to be here, but because actually whatever point in the week it is that you suddenly think of the responsibilities that you've got, and they sort of flood back in again, actually you, you, you would have to be unhuman, inhuman, not human, to not feel the weight of it and think, oh, it would just be nice to stay in bed. So whatever point in the week you would just like to stay in bed, that's that Monday morning moment. And in that morning that you would like to stay in bed, in that moment in which life just feels too heavy, too difficult, the beauty of the Bible is it says to you, yeah, I know. It is really hard to live out of response to God's love because it doesn't always feel real. It doesn't always seem enough. Even though we know it is, it doesn't always feel that way. Actually, if you're a new parent, it might be two o'clock in the morning. I mean, whenever it is, that moment you just feel the weight On you. And that's why verse 24 and verse 25 are so important. Because what the writer to the Hebrews says, and what the scripture writers say universally, is this you are utterly, utterly in trouble if you try and do this on your own. Faith is not an individual sport, faith is completely a team activity. We need one another. You will fail on your own. You won't be able to respond every day to the life of Jesus because it's hard because we live in a world that doesn't recognise the kingship of Jesus because there is, at times, that sort of corrosion of faith that comes through living life around and amongst those who wouldn't look at our our centre of gravity on Jesus and go, that's a great thing. They'd go, well, no, 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 life's about ambition or life's about money or life's about status, or even life's about some good things like family or friendship or doing good. And however good all of those things are, we want to say, yes, 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 but the center of my life, I want to be about the one who's lived and died for me and who won- will one day return for me. It's hard to live that way. And so what the writer of the Hebrew says is, we need one another. Verse 23, let us hold unsavory, uns- unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised us faithful and Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds and let us not give up meeting together, but let us encourage one another. It's all very well praying. It's all very well coming to church and and worshiping on our own. It's all very well trying to read the Bible on the tube or whatever it is. But the Christian faith is also about one anothering. What is the one anothering going on in your faith? Who are you praying with, as we were thinking about last week? Who are you praying for? Whom do you encourage to live a good life for Jesus? Who encourages you? Who do you talk about faith with? I mean, actually, when was the last time you talked about your faith, even with another Christian? Let alone the scary business of talking to somebody who might reject it. The Bible says we cannot, we must not, try and live this Christian faith as individuals, as, as if this is a solo sport. This is a team sport, we need one another. Now that will look different to different people. For some people, it comes through, at least part, through organized, planned decisions to meet with others, to be part of a hub, a small group to meet with a friend, to pray with them. Or a little triplet. I've been meeting with two fellow clergy for more than 20 years now that we train together. And we're now one in Ipswich, one here, one down near Bristol. But four or five times a year, we meet together for a day and we pray for one another. We talk about everything that's going on in our lives and we pray for one another. I used to be part of a group of four, four dads, as it were. I mean, that was the context in which we were meeting. We all had teenagers the same age. And for a couple of years, we used to pray together every three or four weeks, primarily for our families and for us as dads. Who are you praying with? Who are you meeting with? But also some really simple stuff like, you know, when we're chatting with one another before or after church, or you bump into somebody from church, I'm about to say something you, you, I know we'll all squirm at, but I mean, when was the last time that we talked about something other than? family and friends and work. Yeah, Even if, I mean, i give you, here's a permission thing for you, okay? If it helps, pick one of my sermons you've just heard and pick it to bits. Even if it's, just to give you the opportunity to talk faith with somebody. You know, that bit Richard said the other day, that didn't make any sense to me, or I'd nodded off in that bit. Fine, but just talk faith. Talk about what it is to follow Jesus. Talk about what it is to read our Bibles, talk about what it is to pray. It's one of the reasons that we do these little interviews. And thank you to Adele and to others who've been brave enough. It's really scary if you're not used to it up the front here. But actually, let's recognize that we want to help one another, to spur one another on, to encourage one another. And here's the last thing I want to say. To not give up meeting together. We're going to be heading on March the 23rd um, into what's in Anglican terms called an interregnum. Uh, between vicars, that's, a, that's not a very good phrase, is it, interregnum, between reigns. I'm hoping I'm not a king who reigns on a throne. Um, but anyway, that's what they call it, an interregnum. And for a couple of terms, um, there won't be a vicar. And if you're, I hope, thinking to yourself, what part can I play in the life of all souls? How do I make sure that my community, my church is healthy and, and grows and develops through that time. Well, if you want a really, really, really easy place to, cut, to chart, start, I would simply say to you, come to church more, not less. Be here more frequently, not, not less frequently. Don't give up meeting together. Be here. Be amongst your brothers and sisters in Christ. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Encourage the people who are going to be here at the front. Donna and John and Rachel and others who are gonna be up here um, uh, preaching and leading, but also encourage one another. Don't give up meeting together, because we need one another. There's a lie, and the lie is that fundamentally to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, is to fulfill a job description, to measure up to a task list, to fit a role. And some of us are better Christians than others. Some of us do better than others. It's simply a lie. That's religion. That's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith, as I hope I've said almost incessantly for nearly 15 years, is all about response. God makes the first move. And in Jesus, he's made the whole move towards us. He's gone into that holy of holies. He's given his blood, his life, his life for your life, his death instead of your death. And one day he's going to return. And in between times, it's simply about loving him back, loving the people that he's made, caring for this beautiful world he's given us as a gift. But we simply cannot do it alone. We have to one another it together. So who are you praying for? Who are you praying with? Who's encouraging you in your faith? Whom are you encouraging? And being here on a Sunday, that's one way in which you can therefore be an encouragement to others and be built up to head out into your Monday through Saturday life. Let's pray together. <coughs> Jesus, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your gift in your life and death and resurrection, of forgiveness, of access to God, of heart-to-heart contact with you. Help us, not just in our Sundays, but our Monday through Saturday lives, to tell out your love in us, in the way that we live, in who we are, and that as people see us, they would see glimpses of you because you're at work in us. Bless us, we pray. Help us to be a blessing to one another and help us together to be a blessing to our world. In Jesus' name. Amen.